This morning's reading is Luke chapter 6, and we're reading verses 17 to 26. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how your ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. As I said, we're returning to God's word from the Gospel of Luke, but let's pray before we have um, a time to reflect on it. Father, we come to your word and we wait upon it. We ask this morning as we reflect that you would inspire us with a vision of the kingdom into which we are joined and which we are part of in Jesus Christ that you would change our hearts, refocus our values, restore us. Amen. We're going to look for the next few, chap- for the next few weeks in Lent just at chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke. So if you're focusing in, have a time and read through chapter 6. Chapter 6 from verse 17 is called by many folk the Sermon on the plain. Now it's called the Sermon on the Plain for two reasons. One is because it starts with Jesus went down with them. He went down from a mountain and stood on a level place. And it's called the Sermon on the Plain also because in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5, 6, and 7, there's a much more famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. So you've got the plain and the mount. The interesting thing is that both of these sermons are actually very similar. In fact, they've got much of the same material in them, and they both start with, blessed are you who are, and, and, and this list of, of, of what we call beatitudes. In fact, they, they're so similar that, that some folk have said that they can't both be right. Which one is right? One contradicts the other. The Bible's got it wrong. We need to try to work out what Jesus really said. Actually, the, the much more likely explanation is that Jesus sometimes repeated parts of a previous sermon as he went round, which I found really, really, really reassuring as a preacher because I know that sometimes I do that too. So if anybody is watching this that thinks I've heard that line before, that's all right, Jesus did that too. This passage begins, we didn't read the bit beforehand, but it began with Jesus choosing 12 disciples on the mountain and then coming down onto the plain and beginning to teach them. 
One of the questions that we sometimes reflect on is, why did Jesus choose 12? Actually, at that time, Jesus didn't have that many disciples. And so it's strange that he maybe took the few dozen that he had, or, or maybe as low as 20 or 30, and chose 12 of them. If we had a small church today, we wouldn't appoint 12 leaders. It would leave a lot of people excluded. But there's a particular reason that he chooses 12. You see, he's not just teaching a bunch of values that he needs other people to teach and to share. He's quite deliberately creating a new community. The reason that there are 12 chosen is symbolic. There were 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus is saying as he chooses 12, I am founding a new group of people, a new community to live out my kingdom. You see, sometimes people will read the words of Jesus and particularly from the Sermon on the Mount on the Sermon on the Plain, and they'll say, well, I, I, I like what Jesus is saying, and I, I want to take these as my values, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church. In fact, some folk will even suggest that Jesus didn't intend to start a church. He just gave ethical teaching, and, and it was only later on that other people created a church. But actually, as we read this, we can keep in mind that Jesus was very deliberately creating a new community that we call the church. And he was teaching that community what it meant to live in a radically different way. But there is another sense that the community that he was creating was always to be an open community. If you look at the first verses of this, you find that he starts to teach the disciples, but then he says, that Luke tells us there was a large crowd there, and it was a crowd of Jews, people who'd come from Jerusalem, and a crowd of people from Tyre and Sidon. That's where Jezebel came from in the last weeks we were looking at. That's, that's people who would have been Gentiles and pagans. So Jesus is creating a church, a community with values. But at the same time as he's doing that with these disciples, he's wanting them to live out how they live in the society around them so that they begin to model what it really means to live for God. They begin to model what it really means to live in a radical new way, in a new community. And that's what the church is called to do today. We are called to live differently, to live together, to live as a defined body of people, but we're called to do it in the midst of the crowd, in the midst of the world that doesn't know to show a different way of living. Now, what we have in the beginning of this passage is a whole lot of people coming and Jesus meeting their needs. And they've got physical needs. They need healed. They've got spiritual needs. They need um, to be, have the evil driven out of them. But you know, the greatest need that we have isn't physical. The greatest need that we have isn't our own spirituality. The greatest need that we have is community. It's a truth that the deepest desire all of us have is to have good, meaningful relationships with people who love us and we love. But it's also true for all of us that the deepest hurts that we have, the deepest damage that's been done to us has been done by relationships. It's been done by other people. And as Jesus meets, he comes to heal and to show kindness. But he also comes, the relationships might be healed 
in this kingdom of God. Now he begins to teach them, and he is teaching right through about what he calls the kingdom of God. Now the kingdom of God is a very complicated idea um, with lots of different parts to it. But very simply, we want to look at one thing today. What the kingdom of God is, isn't a place or a time. It's a condition of living with God as king. It's a whole new radical way of living as community with God at the center of things. And it is a community that is under new leadership, a new administration, the administration of God in Jesus Christ. Now, if you've worked in any workplace or, or any organization where the leadership has changed, what immediately happens when a new leader comes in is that everything starts to change, not necessarily because they've got a program for change, but because when a new leader comes in, a new set of values come into the organization. There are new things that are important as far as that new leader is concerned. And there are some things that were important that he says are no longer to be the ethos to be the values of this community. It doesn't matter whether it's the prime minister that's changed or the manager that's changed in a football um, context or the CEO of an organization. The new person brings in a new set of values and priorities. And that is what Jesus is speaking here. If we are to be part of the administration, the community of God, the kingdom of God, we'll have a new set of values. And what we're going to discover is that the values that Jesus brings in are upside down. They are the exact opposite of the values that we usually have in our own communities, the values of the kingdom. What we get in verses 20 to 26 are four sets of blessings, uh, so four blessings and then for curses, for woes. I want to look at the woes first of all, because what they tell us is what Jesus is saying, the values of the kingdom are not. So we've got them in verses 23 um, and, sorry, verses 24 and following. Woe to the rich. Woe to the well-fed, verse 25. Woe to those who are laughing and woe to those who are spoken well of. So what have we got here? Four things the world values. First one is riches, and we might translate that as to be powerful, to be able to do stuff that is valued in our society. The second one is to be well-fed. Now, that, that's not just necessarily about food. That's to have all your needs met. There's a, a very key value in our society, a very key motivation. We want to be comfortable. We want to have the holidays that we need. We want to have the food that we need. We want to have the nice homes that we need. So we want to be powerful, rich, and we want to be comfortable. And then the third one is, is it says, woe to you who are laugh now. Now, the laughter that is envisaged here isn't so much the laughter of joy. Jesus isn't saying woe to people who are happy. It's the laughter of gloating. You know when you've got what you want and you sort of that laugh that says, ah, won. I got it. Ha. I got the promotion. Ha. So it's a happiness that is about success. We want to be powerful. 
we want to be comfortable, we want to be successful. And the last one, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. We want to be well thought of, we want to be recognized, we want to be esteemed. So there's some of the things that we find in the world's power. Power, satisfaction, happiness, and recognition. And Jesus says of these things, woe to these things. And, and if you read the woes, what he's basically saying is, if that's what you're hoping for, if that's the direction that's the most important thing in your life, then that's all you'll get. And if you lose it, you'll have nothing because there is no security in it. You'll have received all the reward you get as you get it because it won't last. A society that is built on that is actually a society which will have no harmony because we will never feel affirmed. We will always be looking out to see, have I got the markers that make me important or significant? And anyone that's led any organization that has those worldly values will know that they spend most of their time trying to sort out relationships because somebody's always feeling slighted. Somebody's always feeling undervalued. Somebody's always feeling down. Two people are always falling out. There's always antagonism and competition. Sadly, that's often what happens in the church as well because we take on the same success markers. What Jesus offers here is a radical vision, a revolutionary vision. We find that in the first four statements, verse 20 and following. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the weeping. Blessed are the excluded. Now, we have to be a bit careful here because if I were simply to say, well, the kingdom of God is about being poor, hungry, weeping, and excluded, who's wanting to be part of it? You know, can I go out and sell that? Could you go to your neighbors and say, come to D.L. St. Andrew's Church where you will be poor, hungry, weeping, and excluded? Well, no, I don't think we would want that at all. That would be crazy. Jesus is certainly not saying poverty is fun or it's good to be poor. That would be nonsense. But he is turning the values upside down. What the kingdom of God values is the presence of God, his love and his promise to us. And you'll see as you look at the four values that are there, each one comes with a promise. Yours is the kingdom. You will be satisfied. You will laugh. You will be like the prophets of old. You see, what's being invited here is that we depend on the promises of God. And that means that riches and comfort and success and recognition, if those things come to us, that's fine. They're not bad things. But they are no longer the values that drive us because we recognize that they lead only to a hollow place. Tim Keller, as he looks at this passage uses this illustration, which I found quite helpful. Imagine a person, and unfortunately, it's too easy to imagine just now, but imagine a person who loses their job. That's horrible. And they're struggling, perhaps, to find anything else. But here's the bigger problem. If all you crave is comfort and riches and success, if that's what gives you your recognition from other people, if that's what your life is all about, 
then you will be utterly crushed when that happens to you. Because you will feel you have no significance, no meaning, no purpose anymore. But if what's important to you is the Lord Jesus, if what's important to you is the eternal kingdom that you are part of, if what's important to you are what's important to him, then it changes things. Yes, you will still feel the pain. You will weep when bad things happen. You will sense it. But blessed are you when you weep. For you will laugh, says Jesus. And what's transformed that is two things. First of all, there is a promise that one day things will be different. One day things will be better. But it's much more than that because it's not just a promise of things being better in some point in some heaven to come. Because Jesus says, blessed are you now. Blessed are you now because you know that your value comes from him. That your value comes from being part of the kingdom. You see, when you allow Jesus' values to be in the center of it, it transforms life because you are no longer dependent on things that you can lose. You are no longer dependent on things that you achieve, that you have to feel that you've got or you've provided. These upside-down values set you free. Not that you might not have some of these things that the world values, but you might not be a slave to them. You might not be completely dependent on them. Jesus isn't saying riches are bad, but he is saying this, and this is right through the Gospel of Luke, by the way, that there is a problem with riches because riches tempt us to think that's what it's about, to value them. That's why Jesus will say in Luke's Gospel how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. James will say the love of money is the root of of all kinds of evil, the love of money. If these are the values you have, you've got a problem. Now, if you turn to Matthew's version in Matthew chapter five, have a look at it later. It's slightly different. Because Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't say blessed are the poor. He says blessed are the poor in spirit. It's amazing that Matthew's gospel and his version of the Sermon on the Mount is far more famous than Luke's because we like that much better, don't we? We can value being poor in spirit. I don't mind being poor in spirit as long as I'm not poor. But I actually think what Jesus is saying as Matthew records it and what Jesus is saying in the sermon that Luke records are actually saying much the same thing. It's our attitude that it's been driven at. It's the priorities that are being driven at. You see, if you are poor of spirit, if you are humble, if you are trying to be like Jesus, then riches aren't the thing that you want anyway. Now, there's more to it than that. Because what Jesus is teaching here isn't just personal priorities in life, you know, like reading some self-help book and getting some new goals and new values so that you can go and be a more content person with a solid base for life. Yes, we're offered that. Yes, we're offered that security that comes in knowing that Jesus is what's important to us. But these are also the values for a community. As we live our life together, as we affirm each other, as we are part of this kingdom of God together, then success, power, celebrity, and privilege are not going to be the things that we value. 
And the successful and the powerful and the celebrity and the privileged are not going to be the people that we put at the top of the heap in the church. But actually, we're going to look at the world differently. We're going to look at the world as Jesus looked at the world and look at the people he valued. Look at the people he put at the center of things. Look at the excluded people. Look at the poor people. Look at the desperate people. Look at the broken people. And Jesus said, these people matter because these are my values. Jesus didn't come just to teach us an inner spirituality that might give us strength to live. He came to teach us how to live in the community that is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor. You see, you can't say that unless you live your life in such a way that you bless the poor. And as you read it in the book of James, where he quite clearly says, you can't bless the poor by going around saying, well, bless you. You actually have to do something to change the situation that they're in. Now, this is something that sometimes Christians in some places have found controversial. Oh, the church shouldn't get involved in politics and all those things. But here's the thing. The one thing that is completely consistent throughout the whole Bible, no doubts, is that we are commanded by God to care for those that are at the margins and those that are poor. You'll find it in the law. You'll find it in the Psalms. You'll find it in the prophets in spades. You'll find it in the example of Jesus, the commands of Paul, and the letter of James. It's right there throughout the whole Bible. Now, the trouble with it is that the church often says, oh, well, we do stuff to help the poor. We've got a committee that specializes in that. We've got some folk in our church who are really into helping the poor. But that's not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying this is a basic value of the people of God. It informs everything that we do. It involves everything that we value. I um, spent some time um, a couple of years ago with my congregation preaching through the book of Leviticus. <laughs> You're looking forward to me doing that here, aren't you? But actually, I found it fantastic because Leviticus very practically tells a community of God's people, here is how you shall live in a way that brings social justice to the world. For instance, they're told, if you've got a field and you're harvesting the field, don't harvest right up to the edges. Don't get, take every last bit of corn or crop you can get out of your field. Leave the bits at the edges for the poor. It's a very early social security system. But there's more. They're told on the third year, on top of all your usual offerings and tithes, have an extra tithe, an extra 10%, and that's to go to the poor. And on the seventh year, if you've got an orchard or a vineyard and it's full of crops, don't pick any of them. It's the seventh year. Leave them all for the poor. But there's one other provision that even goes further than that. You see, poverty isn't just about not having enough now because of the things that you've done and you've spent all your money or you've lived recklessly. The thing with poverty is it's a trap. It's not just about what an individual has done. The often poverty is something that goes down generations. You're much more likely to be poor if you were born poor. 
you're much more likely to be poor if you were born into a poor community. And the problem with that is that very often that, that poverty goes down through the generations from father to son, from mother to daughter. How do we break that? Well, here's Leviticus. Leviticus says, when they got into the promised land, every family would be given a share of the land. So every family would have resources. Every family would be part of a property-owning society. And you could sell your land. You could trade your land. You could do well and acquire more land, or you could lose the land that you had, just like we do in a capital society. But here's the difference. Every 50 years, there was to be a year of jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, all land was to be returned to the family that originally owned it. Now, what that did is it didn't just give the poor back their land. It broke the generational chains of poverty. It gave everybody back capital and investment. It was a whole new system. Now, whether the law of God in Leviticus was actually lived out by God's people is another whole question. But here's the point. The people of God, when they are committed to the poor, don't just feed the hungry. They start asking questions about the whole systems of capital, the whole systems of labor. They start asking questions about why it is that people are poor. They start asking political questions, economic questions, and everything else. It's why our great organizations, our great aid organizations, Tier Fund or Crossreach or Christian Aid, don't just run food banks and feed people. They actually start to ask questions about trade justice, about political systems, about taxation systems, and all of these other things. That's what it means to start to be a blessing on the poor, to live out kingdom values that begin to change the rules. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what political system we should run under today, but it starts to say to us what the values are that we as Christians who live in the kingdom should start to reflect to the world around us. Jesus, in Luke chapter 4, and again, if you're using your good theo, you can look back on it, came in his first sermon in Nazareth. He preached in the synagogue, and he said, I've come to bring good news to the poor but he went on to say relief to the oppressed, freedom to the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, or in some translations, the year of the Lord's jubilee. That's really quite striking. So where are we? Well, if we're going to live as Jesus invites us to live, we are living with upside-down values. Values that inform what's important to us as we live our lives. Values that change the place of suffering into a place where actually we can begin to find out what it means to trust in God. Values that make us suspicious of riches and things that might lead us astray. Not antagonistic to them, but certainly careful and cautious if we are gathering and accumulating riches. Values that turn everything upside down. Now, we might look at this and say, well, this is just impossible. The human heart doesn't go there. And if you treat this as just ethical teaching from the good teacher, Jesus, you're absolutely right. This is, humanly speaking, impossible. But you see, 
to live in the kingdom of God is to live as part of a new creation, a new community. It's to look to Jesus. It's to look to his example and how he treated people and how he lived, but it's to look to more than that. For he gave himself for us. For he put aside success, for he put aside riches, for he put aside comfort and popularity as he gave himself for us on the cross. And when we understand that, and when we accept what he has given to us, and when we realize that that is the most important thing in the universe, that is the thing that brings us blessing beyond blessing, then it transforms us. When we learn to live that out together with Jesus and what he did on the cross and the resurrection in the center of our life together, the most important thing, the object of our worship, our desire, our hope, then it begins to change who we are and how we live, that we can experience blessing, but also that we, as we live, as disciples in the midst of the crowd, in disciples in the midst of the world, can learn to be a blessing in Jesus' name to all that are around us. So we will continue with the Sermon on the Mount, sorry, the Sermon on the Plain, and its upside-down values. Amen.